Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the 49ers Plus podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and today we'll start off talking about the 49ers' dominant win at the Panthers this past Sunday, how San Francisco found their running game again. Good Jimmy G was on display. Unfortunately, there were some defensive injuries, more defensive injuries, and we'll look ahead to next week or this week's upcoming game at the Atlanta Falcons. In the plus section, we'll talk some college football. We'll talk some Major League Baseball playoffs now that the wild card series is over, looking ahead to the the divisional round. Some NFL coaching firings or potential firings, some potential trades, some horrendous roughing the passer calls and other bad coaching decisions. And of course, we'll finish up with making our week six NFL picks. So let's get started. Let's talk Niners. And it was an impressive 37 to 15 win for San Francisco at Carolina. A quick look at the stats, total yards, San Francisco with the edge 397 to 308. Each team had a turnover. Time of possession was basically even. First downs dominated by San Francisco 22 to 15. At quarterback, Jimmy G was 18 of 30, 253 yards and two touchdowns. Baker Mayfield, 20 of 36, 215 and one interception. The running game got back on track. Jeff Wilson Jr. led the charge, 17 rushes for 120 yards and a touchdown. Tevin Coleman back with his second stint with the team, eight rushes for 23 yards and a touchdown. Debo added two for 12, so in total, the team, 29 rushes for 153 yards. For the Panthers, Christian McCaffrey, 14 for 54 and a touchdown. As a team, 17 rushes for 64 yards. Receiving some of the leaders for San Francisco, Brandon Ayuk, 3 for 58. Kittle, 5 for 47. Debo, 2 for 20 and a touchdown. And Tevin Coleman, 3 for 44 and one touchdown. Carolina, Shai Smith went four for 68, DJ Moore four for 59, and McCaffrey led in receptions seven for 50. Looking at the top graded players per pro football focus on offense, Brandon Ayuk, Juwan Jennings, Jeff Wilson Jr., Kyle Juszczyk, and Tevin Coleman. So no Jimmy G, no offensive lineman on the top five graded players as there have been alignment um, for the first four weeks of the season. On defense, Charvarius Ward, Fred Warner, Dre Greenlaw, Tayshawn Gibson, and Oren Burks, um, who's filling in at linebacker for the injured disease, Al Shire. So offense, the only turnover was a Kittle fumble on the second drive of the game. Kittle led the team in targets with, I believe, nine Um, which was good. The fumble wasn't good to see, but the targets and the involvement in the offense was good to see, seeing how he wasn't really that involved since coming back um, from injury. And listen, what Jimmy did, again, 18 of 30, 253 and two touchdowns, this is what they need from Jimmy moving forward, playing a clean game, throwing two touchdowns a game would be ideal. More would be fantastic. I could even handle the one interception. If you can tell me you're going to get, you know, two touchdowns from Jimmy, because he's someone that I think in his best year with San Francisco only threw in 2019, only threw a shade over, over 20 touchdowns. If he can get to 30, 32, and he won't, 
But if he can get to 25, 27, um, again, you know, that the ints, the interceptions, the, the head scratching throws are still going to always be on the table. I think they're more pronounced with Jimmy because we're looking for them rather than if it was a Trey Lance or if Purdy had to come in or, or other quarterbacks around the league, all quarterbacks make bad throws. Jimmy, unfortunately, when he makes them, um, defenses make him pay for it, but this was a good Jimmy, a good Jimmy game. And if San Francisco gets more good Jimmy games, they are going to be difficult to beat. Now, what may offset that, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, is injuries. Um, but as long as the offense can run efficiently, run well, volume and yardage, and get a clean game from Jimmy Garoppolo, th- this team has a lot of talent, even with injuries, and will be a difficult out. Touchdown throws were to Debo Samuel and Tevin Coleman, both of them were throws that were made uh, inside the inside the 10. Um, Coleman was basically a quick screen pass, and Debo was, I think, like a four-yard reception um, that Jimmy threw into the end zone. Jimmy also had a beautiful sideline feint to Tevin Coleman on a blitz. I, I don't want to say that he kind of threw it up as, as like a Hail Mary, because where he put it, um, it was beautiful placement. It was, it was either Tevin Coleman's going to come down that, tiptoeing down the sideline, or the corner, and Coleman was lined up on a corner after the game Coleman said that Jimmy showed some some faith in him and Tevin rewarded him with with that reception Jimmy again so he almost threw a pick to Debo now this was similar to the interception that he threw to Debo against the Broncos where Debo's running an in and the quarterback drives down towards the line of scrimmage on the in broke it up um if the cornerback got there maybe a second earlier, he would have gotten his full body in front and hands in front of it. It would have been an interception. Those again, those are plays that, you know, we keep talking about it and we're going to keep talking about it until the offense maybe gets a little bit more explosive and diversified of teams crowding that 10 yard box from the line of scrimmage. And I think they know Debo um, is one of his favorite targets along with Kittle. Actually, D- I take that back. Debo led, led the game in targets with nine. Kittle had six. Um, but they know where Debo is ultimately, you know, going to be, even even Ayuk for that matter. I wonder, though, and I think this is just for, well, I'll say for conversation's sake, even though it's not a two-way conversation, if right now, week four, week five, week six of the season, if the playbook in any way is more heavily re- relying upon these short passes because perhaps Jimmy's shoulder is not quite 100%. And I'm I'm not a Jimmy Homer. I'm not making excuses. I'm just wondering. You know, e- every week there are a good amount of bubble screens to receivers, slip screens, short throws to the running back, those, you know, short, you know, ins and outs or outs and ins, rather, that, that running backs run out of the backfield, of course, the ins of the receivers. Now, Jimmy did push the ball downfield. He had uh, a deep pass that he tried to hit rookie Danny Gray on. Didn't happen. He had a deep throw to Tevin Coleman. Um, so he was, and, and actually, on the first drive of the game, kind of a deep fade down the sideline to George Kittle as well. So they were pushing the ball. I mean, we're not, again, this isn't a team that's going to be throwing 50-yard bombs down the sideline or, or the middle of the field as much as other teams are, but again, to involve it somewhat, to stretch 
the defense. And Jimmy has come out and said that his shoulder is not 100%. Not an excuse. I'm just going over facts. He did. He had soldier sh- shoulder surgery. He was not part of organized team activities before training camp. He was not part of training camp with the team. He was play. He was playing or working out rather on a side field by himself, or actually just throwing with somebody. A lot different than throwing in the pocket, than throwing two receivers crossing. You're worrying about touch more and. And ball placement, he he was essentially playing catch. Preseason, nothing. Again, they were still trying to trade him. And it wasn't until the end of August that they resought that Jimmy and the 49ers came to an agreement to resign. I, I can imagine. I mean, he when reports came out that he was having shoulder surgery, it wasn't a rotator cuff surgery. And, and for those of you out there that have had that, that is a grueling rehab. So when you hear not rotator cuff surgery, you think, well, no surgery is a piece of cake. I mean, if you have to go under the knife, even for wisdom teeth, um, it's it's a big deal. There, there's pain involved. There's rehab involved. I don't think people realize until hearing from Jimmy, and maybe Jimmy himself didn't realize how extensive the rehab would be, how long um, the rehab would be until he would be cleared to throw. And that wasn't until, I believe, mid to late June. He had surgery in February or March. It's four months, four or five, you know, four plus months of not throwing. And he says his arm is tired, you know, after the game. And I'm sure other quarterbacks too. Jimmy's not a spring chicken. He's 30. Um, but I can imagine that just strengthening, obviously, as as the season goes on. So maybe something to keep an eye on. Maybe with the shoulder strength and the arm strength returning, maybe Kyle does dial up a more Trey Lance-like vertical passing game to try to become more than what they were in 2019 when they made their way to the Super Bowl. But again, it wasn't an explosive offense. I do want people to remember, though, Jimmy was 20 of 23 in that Super Bowl with 10 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. The wheels fell off everywhere. Um, but let, you know, I I never look back on that Super Bowl and say it was Jimmy's fault. Sometimes the other team plays better. But being 21 of 24 or 20 of 23, whatever he was early in the fourth, Yes, you want to close close games out. I totally get it, but you couldn't ask more of him for for the first, I don't know, 50 minutes of the Super Bowl. I'm actually also curious too, and there is a, a 49er um beat reporter who you know is a reporter, but he's more um looking for kind of hot clicks and hot takes. His name is Grant Cohn. Uh, I listen to some of the stuff when he does video, I read some of his stuff. He's not an objective reporter as some other ones who just kind of detail facts and give maybe a lukewarm or vanilla opinion on something. He's pretty opinionated. Um, He's to the point where he's pissed players off. I think uh, Javon Kinlaw on training camp, I don't know if he shoved him or or said something and other players backed him up. Um, They just didn't like a reporter. And again, he's like, he's got to be in his thirties. I would think maybe early thirties, mid thirties, you know, someone like that taking, taking shots at him. And it's, it's been, you know, Grant Cohn's MO for a while, but of all the reporters, I would think he sh- would or should be the one to ask at a press conference, you know, ask Jimmy, why do you throw high? You know, when you watch a game, Jimmy's not the most accurate quarterback. They talk about his quick release and he throws a pretty pass. The ball does look pretty, you know, spinning it off his hands, but he throws high. It's not like he's Russell Wilson or Drew Brees or even Kyler Murray. He's 6'2". 
Now, the offensive linemen in front of him are, are taller than that. So I, I understand, like, with arm angles and stuff, how you have to get the ball over the line if you're not actually seeing in between the linemen for a passing lane. But he, when, he, when he tends to miss, he tends to miss high. He tends to throw behind also. But if I had to pick one for which he's most egregious, it is throwing high. And I'm just, I'm just curious... I'm just curious why that is. I don't know. I mean, he's 30 years old now. I don't think it's anything that's fixable. But I would love to hear the answer to the question. And I mean, maybe Jimmy doesn't even know. But just something I was thinking as, as some of the balls were coming out um, high, one of which was the touchdown that Debo caught. Debo's not a small guy, but he's also not a receiver with long arms. He's he's very very compactly built. That's why he's playing some, some running back for them. He had to climb the ladder. He had to go up and get that touchdown um, from Jimmy. So again, just, just something on my mind that I was curious about getting back to the running game. I mentioned 29 rushes total. Um, they're getting, obviously they got very close to that third, that lower level of their magic number. So 30, 40 is extreme. I think between 30 and 35 is where they want to be as a team. Um, and they actually out, out through Jimmy threw the ball 30 times. They ran the ball 29 times. That is statistical, nearly 50-50 statistical balance, right? But I, I still don't think that's Kyle balance. I think Kyle would want maybe 27, 28 throws, 35, you know, 32 to 35 rushes, which is okay. But Wilson, Jeff Wilson Jr. got 17 carries, 8 for Tevin Coleman. Again, this is where they need to be. Jeff Wilson Jr., I'll, I'll, I'll say this for, you know, some of the, I don't want to say older Niner fans, but people that were aware of watching 49er football in the early 90s. Jeff Wilson Jr. reminds me a little bit of Ricky Waters. I'm not saying that they're the identical player. Jeff Wilson, when he started with the team, he was the third down back. So he was the one that was responsible for um, potential pass protection if he were to stay in, but also going out and catching passes. Ricky Waters, when he was with the team from, I believe, it was either 91 to 94. Yeah, 91 to 94. Um, left after the Super Bowl victory over the Chargers to go to the Eagles. And then the running game really struggled um, for a while until um, they were able to uh, sign, or I don't know if they traded for a signed Garrison Hurst <laughs> in free agency. But he has some of the same body movements, the way he kind of sometimes carries the ball away from his body, which is a no-no. Um, but they they look they look similar. And they might be built pretty similarly as well because Ricky Waters wasn't, wasn't a Jerome Bettis. He wasn't a, a heavy running back. Um, but Tev, now Tevin Coleman. So he was signed a week ago, or maybe a little more than a week ago, elevated. He's He was elevated to the active roster. This was not a practice squad call-up. So again, let's get back to that familiarity and trust for Kyle. Tevin Coleman ran the ball, ran the ball more this one game than Jordan Mason has in his entire 49er regular season career. And I believe he has one or two carries total. It actually might be one, and it might have been last week, one for seven, um, one for seven yards. Mason's been here since camp. Now, again, like I said last week, Kyle's known Tevin Coleman from their time with Atlanta in Atlanta together before becoming the coach of the 49ers. Coleman was with the Niners in 2019 and 2020. He gets the system. I I, I get that. But he was more or less a street free agent. They they kind of Picked him up off the street, put him on the practice squad for a one week, elevated him this week to the active roster, and he winds up getting eight carries um, and a handful of receptions as well. Glad to have him, um, and I think he's probably going to be a mainstay on the roster um, 
for the re- for the rest of the season, maybe not, but until Elijah Mitchell comes back because they still have Ty Davis Price who's coming back from a high ankle. So they may carry between Wilson, Mason, Coleman, and Price. Those will probably be their four on the active roster um, until Mitchell comes back. And actually, Price is has been on the active roster. They did not put him on injured reserve. He's just an inactive every week, but still part of the 53-man roster. Now, we haven't mentioned Debo yet and running the ball. He only had two carries. I'm okay with that because, again, you don't want to wear down one of your best weapons. And if you're going to call, at least this made sense to me, right? You call Kevin Tevin Coleman up or you activate him to the practice squad. He gets the eight carries. So you, in essence, took maybe three, four carries away from Debo or more. Debo only had two carries. Only one was a straight-up handoff where he was next to Jimmy. The other one was was a, a quasi, almost like a fake reverse, where, where Debo was lined up to the right of Jimmy, but as a receiver, like to the to the right of the tackle, to the right of the tight end. And he came around, um, it was basically almost like a 10-yard gain. And his other, other run from under center was only two yards. So Kyle gets it. I think all of us got it maybe a week or two before Kyle did that lining up Debo is not going to work. But I, I do agree with, and if it's only two carries, that's okay. Because again, he did have nine targets. So he could have touched the ball in total 11 times. This is not, again, a Cooper Cup situation where, you know, Stafford's a more accurate quarterback. Cooper Cup is a better receiver, whereas Debo's more versatile. And and Stafford and, and Cup on the Rams have a different and better connection than Jimmy and Debo do as a quarterback um, and a receiver. So, so Debo's never going to get, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 catches a game. I'm okay with the volume of targets or attempts to get him the ball. Uh, whether it is downfield, behind the line, reverse, handoff, wide receiver screen, pitch back, whatever it may be. Um, I like the utilization. Now, Debo only had two catches and two carries. But again, the additional nine targets, they're trying to get their playmakers the ball. I think Ayuk uh, had, I think, six tar- five or six targets. And uh, George Kittle had six targets as well. So I think that distribution is better. If you're only throwing the ball between 25 and 30 times a game, it's not like you're going to have your top three playmakers get 10 targets apiece. It's just it's just not the way that Kyle's offense is built. Um, so rounding out the offense before we get into defense, you know, question out there uh, for the netherworld, you know, who the backup tackle is right now on the team. So Trent Williams hurt, hopefully coming back in a couple weeks. The backup Colton McKivitz hurt, out for two months. So Jalen Moore is the left tackle, second-year player, and Mike McGlinchey is the right tackle. If Jalen Moore goes down, the only three other linemen that were active, because they had they carried they had actually carried nine week one, they wound up signing Blake Hance, I think, going into week two or week three. So they they originally had nine. Now they have ten offensive linemen. Two are injured. Trent Williams and Colton McKibbins. So now they have eight on the active roster. I don't believe they called anybody up for this past game at Carolina, but it's Blake Hans, Daniel Brunskill, um, and I'm and I'm forgetting a third. I apologize, but I uh, I'm not sure who is going to be the backup tackle, um, or who was the backup tackle. Oh, I'm sorry, Nick Zakiel, uh, the rookie out of Fordham, who has who's played tackle in 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 college. Fordham at a lower level, but they're they're anticipating him to be a guard. They worked out two offensive tackles that have start not an extensive starting experience, but have starting experience in the league. 
Rashad Hill, and Kendall Lamb. They've also worked out some defensive players, which we'll get into. So I think, I'm wondering if they're going to, so they're going to have to elevate someone from the practice squad based on defensive injuries. It's just a matter of if they re-sign, if they sign a defensive player to the active roster or practice squad, and the same thing for an offensive lineman. They're they're okay with carrying eight, because eight is the minimum offensive lineman number that you need going into a game. So they have eight. It's not like they have five, six, or seven. They have enough, um, but I'm sure they they want um, just to kick the tires and see what's out there. They have four offensive linemen on their practice squad, among them being uh, Jason Poe, which was who was an undrafted free agent out of Mercer who can play guard. Um, so they have some interior linemen on their practice squad, but I think they need to look at a true tackle just in case. And if nothing else, sign him to the practice squad. So... Turning to defense, again, fifth straight game that the defense did not allow a touchdown in the first half. Coming off of seven sacks of Matthew Stafford, they sack Baker Mayfield and P.J. Walker combined six times. They only allowed 64 rushing yards. And the Panthers did muster 244 passing yards, but a good amount of them came in garbage time the last four minutes of the game. Now, injuries, again, this team, just bad luck. Jimmy Ward, I talked about this last week, coming off of a severe hamstring strain or tear. Practiced leading up to this week. They activated him. Like, I'm not sure why they did that. If they didn't activate him, they would have avoided the injury. But he didn't hurt his hamstring. Instead, he broke his hand. Now, I guess that's better. And he's having surgery, I think, either today or might have had it. I think maybe today, uh, Tuesday. He could potentially play with it with like a club on. I, I don't, I don't know how that's going to shake out. But he got injured. Nick Bosa came out in the second quarter with groin tightness. Um, said he, said it wasn't feeling great Monday and today. Now this is it's not the identical image uh, injury that his brother Joey had for the LA Chargers. But he had a great injury. He had to have surgery, and he was going to miss multiple uh, months. I think up to up to two months. Hopefully that's not the same for Nick, but an injury to keep track of. And of course, um, Emmanuel Mosley at corner who had the pick six against Baker Mayfield in the fourth quarter up by 15 with a little over four minutes to play. Mosley goes up um, to break up uh, a deep downfield pass, winds up tearing his ACL in his left knee. He's done for the year. So we're not totally looking ahead to the Atlanta game, but for next week, for this upcoming week, we already know that starting defensive tackles Javon Kinlaw and Eric Armstead are out. Now add to that a starting corner, Emmanuel Mosley. Uh, Aziz Alshire, uh, starting slash rotational linebacker, depending on if they go three linebackers or two, is out already. He's going to miss another month plus. Now add on top of that Nick Bosa. If he's out, you're missing three of your uh, four starting defensive linemen, and all those three are, are first-round picks. Not like that matters, but they're highly productive. And now Jimmy Ward could be out probably the least intrusive of the injuries I listed just because he missed every game up to the Carolina game and only played, I think, three snaps, the kickoff and the first two defensive snaps, uh, and just wasn't, and wasn't able to go. Um, so I'm not sure, you know, how much any of these players are going to attempt to play through injury, but I also do wonder if the coaching staff looking at Atlanta, it's a it's a winnable game. Do they want to hold any of the players out that could potentially play and, and just be cautious? 
because after Atlanta, you're at home for Kansas City. You're going to need all defensive hands on deck. And then you're at the Rams, and they've had the Rams number in the regular season, and they beat them already, and the Rams don't look good, but it's still the Rams. They could go off. You don't want you don't want to be the game where the Rams get right. So working out at, def- at defensive line, they brought in uh, on Monday defensive tackle Kevin Atkins, who was in their training camp, an undrafted rookie out of Fresno State, and they also have brought in Sheldon Day, defensive tackle, who was part of the team in 2019 and got significant playing time throughout the season, but especially in the playoffs and in the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. And the last defensive tackle they brought in was um, Ty McGill, most formerly of the Minnesota Vikings, so he has experience. And they also um, looked at a defensive end, Austin Edwards, um, who was with the Chiefs, uh, I don't know if it was this season or last season, Again, looking at that Bosa injury, the only defensive lineman they have on their practice squad is Alex Barrett. He's a defensive end. So if you're going to already be down two tackles, two starting tackles and a starting D end, there may be some uh, reinforcements coming. And if they do that, they may have to put someone on IR. They may have to release somebody to elevate someone from the practice practice squad or just sign someone uh, off the street onto the active roster. We'll see what they're going to do. But most importantly, I mean, actually every level is important. Linebacker, Shires hurt, three injuries on the D-line, two injuries in the in the secondary. What's, what is San Francisco going to do at, at starting corner? So Mosley goes down. Who's on the roster behind him? Second-year players, Ambry Thomas, who was uh, gained some great experience at the end of last year. If you'll remember... He was the corner covering Odell Beckham in the Week 18 game where San Francisco beat the Rams in overtime. Ambry Thomas made the game-clinching interception that sent San Francisco to the playoffs and, and played you know relatively well in the playoffs as well. For whatever reason, this year in training camp, he was leapfrogged um, by other players and isn't getting you know, the playing time that he did. But then again, they also brought in Traverius Ward. So you had Mosley and Ward locking up the starting corners. Uh, It looked like fellow, it looked like rookie Samuel Womack was going to win the nickel job. He's played great in the preseason, but he was leapfrogged by Diamador Lenore. So the the cornerbacks now on the active roster, they only had five. Traverius Ward is a starter. It could be Ambry Thomas. Um, Diamador Lenore is the nickelback. And Sam Womack, they may they already said they may give him a, a long look at outside corner uh, as well. But they have Jason Verrett, who was um, whose practice window, excuse me, was activated last week, coming off of an ACL tear that he suffered in the first game of last season. So he is a year plus removed, and it's I think it's good that they didn't rush him back. There was no need to rush him back the first five weeks of the season because of the, the relative health of the secondary and how well they were playing. Or old reliable Dante Johnson uh, is on the practice squad with the team. So it's either going to be Johnson. To me, it's either going to be Johnson or Womack. I'm not sure if Verrett's ready. Um, He's going to need to be ready at some point. He may need to be ready the week after Atlanta to play the Chiefs, and they're stable of weapons, even without Tyreek Hill. But I think when it comes to a trust standpoint, and that's what Kyle Shanahan's all about, I think... He trusts, and so does D'Amico Ryans, the defensive coordinator, trusts Dante Johnson to do the job. Womack is a rookie. I think he maybe comes in if if Johnson extremely struggles or gets injured. And I think Verrett, I don't think he's going to be 
to me, I don't think he's going to be active this week, but the Chiefs game next week could be where he gets activated. Now, looking ahead in our last segment to the game this upcoming week, it's a one o'clock game against the Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta, two and three, but their three losses are only by a total of 11 points. They lost to the Saints, 27-26 in New Orleans. They lost to the Rams at LA, 31-27. And they lost at the Bucks this past Sunday, 21-15. We'll be talking more about that game in the plus section. They did win at Seattle, 27-23. And they did beat Cleveland at home in Atlanta, 23-20. Now, overall... Atlanta has the 25th total uh, offense in the league. They're ranked uh, 30th passing the ball, but third against the rush. And this past week at Tampa Bay, they ran the ball 31 times for 151 yards. Marcus Mariota, quarterback who is mobile, ran the ball this past week seven, seven times for 61 yards. And their three running backs, Tyler Algier, Caleb Huntley, and Avery Williams, who's actually a converted college cornerback, combined to run 24 times for 90 yards. So they, even with uh, Corderell Patterson out, and I could actually say his name this week, you're welcome, they have a commitment to the run, right? They didn't get away from the running game because Patterson's out. They wound up running the ball 24 times between three running backs for 90 yards. Defensively, struggling, 27th in total defense, 29th against the pass, 17th against the run middle of the pack, but they are allowing 114 yards per game. You know, this is a team that does have some weapons um, led by Kyle Pitts. He did not play this past week against the Buccaneers. He's questionable this week. They will need him um, against San Francisco. Drake London, rookie receiver out of USC, having a good start to his career so far. And the fact that Marcus Mariota is mobile, historically, Mobile QBs have given San Francisco problems. More accurately, mobile QBs give everybody problems. But if San Francisco is going to be is going to be down three starters on their defensive line, the mobility of someone like a Mariota um, has the potential to cause fits. I don't know if that means Dorico uh, Dorico Ryan decides to play more um, man and blitz. Do you comfortable play? Are you comfortable playing man, knowing that one of your starting cornerbacks is out? I think it's going to be an interesting. Chess game, even though Atlanta's not a super explosive offense, I think it's going to, given the injuries to San Francisco's defense, Ryan's, if they can't manufacture a pass rush with four, they are going to have to blitz, but then it's going to leave whoever is opposite Charvarius Ward potentially on an island. Um, defensively, they, they also have some players. Grady Jarrett at defensive tackle. We'll talk more about him in the plus section. Uh, linebacker Rashawn Evans and Lorenzo Carter. And their corners, they have, a, they have a solid starting cornerback duo of A.J. Terrell and Casey Hayward. I think this is a game, again, if San Francisco can play a clean game, specifically if Jimmy can play a clean game, I think San Francisco can control the ball, control the clock, dictate the pace of the game. Um, Kyle Pitts, if they don't play, that's if he doesn't play, that's really going to hurt Atlanta offensively. I'm expecting him... Um, to play, this is, I don't want to say a must-win game for Atlanta, but you don't want to go go down two, two, uh, to two and four and potentially be down two full games to the Buccaneers. Um, but I think this is a game where I don't think Atlanta can hurt San Francisco too much, even with the injuries. Now, remember, it's not just this week where San Francisco's had injuries. They've had injuries nearly from the jump with between Jimmy Ward bringing in Tayshawn Gibson, 
Um, Kinlaw has been battling injuries. Shair got hurt a couple weeks ago. They haven't had their full defense on the field all year. It's progressively gotten worse from an injury standpoint, but it's not like the statistics have deteriorated. They have been playing offense. They have not been playing offensive world beaters. That helps. Um, but the team has been dominant, even having to rely on backups because some of the frontline players are out. And this week, they have the potential of missing six starters. Let's really call it five, since Ward hasn't started at all this year. Five out of 11 starters, that's nearly half of your defense. And then once you go nickel, you're going to be bringing in younger players as well, whether it is Lenore or if if Womack's going to play outside, he's a rookie. Um, All that being said, I think this is a game San Francisco wins 27-17. to This is a game San Francisco needs to win. Because of the injuries, because of what's upcoming on the schedule, the Chiefs look really good, even though the Raiders jumped up on them 17-0 last week in the Monday night game. You know that game was far from over. The Chiefs are always going to be there at the end because of uh, Patrick Mahomes and the talent that they have. Then after that, they're at the Rams, then a bye. Then you have teams like the Chargers, uh, the Dolphins. I'm sure quarterbacks will be healthy by then. The Buccaneers coming to town. So, the schedule, even though they have some home games, they have some powerful teams or at least some strong out offenses uh, coming to play San Francisco. So to get a win now, to go to four and two, and then coming after that, you got to get one, I think, to be five and three going into the bye. And that sets you up really nice for maybe a 10 or 11 or if things break really, really well, um, a 12 win season. But first things first, three and two, hoping to be four and two. I think San Francisco covers and gets a 27 to 17 win at Atlanta. Now stick around. We have a lot that we're going to talk about in the plus section, and we'll, we will be right back after this. It's plus time. Welcome back, everyone. And I wanted to start the plus section off talking some college football. And I think one of the biggest eyebrow-raising games of the weekend was Texas absolutely shellacking Oklahoma 49 to nothing in their annual meeting, which is dubbed the Red River Rivalry or the Red River Showdown. Um, Now, it's called that because the body of water that separates most of Texas from Oklahoma is considered the Red River. But a good piece of trivia knowledge for you, this rivalry used to be called the Red River Shootout. Until 2005, it was renamed to either Rivalry or Showdown. It's used interchangeably because it did not want to convey or condone gun violence. Yet, I've heard that in Texas and Oklahoma, when you buy a bicycle, even for a child, it automatically comes with a gun rack. So I just found that um, curious. Now, for the game itself, Texas, I mean, if you win 49-0, you're dominating in all aspects, right? So in yards, 585 to 195. First downs, 34 to 11. Texas won the time of possession battle by six minutes. And turnovers, Oklahoma had two. Texas had one. Now, head coach for Oklahoma, Brent Venables, who was the former defensive coordinator for many years of the Clemson Tigers, this was absolutely disgraceful. Right, I mean, you are a defensive head coach. You're coming, a head coach. You're coming to a team that has a proud history of defense, especially under former coach Bob Stoops, and you get pounded 
by a fellow unranked team. Now, if you can't get up for this game against Texas, you can't get up for any game. So that was obviously wildly disappointing and disgraceful is probably the right word. And Oklahoma fans, how do you feel about Lincoln Riley, former head coach, leaving now and being the head coach of USC in the Pac-12? And they're ranked number six in the nation currently. And Oklahoma, you know, they're three and three. They were unranked going into the Texas game. They're going to stay unranked. Texas is now in the um, top 25. But Oklahoma has beaten nobody. They beat UTEP, Kent State, and Nebraska, which is, Nebraska's atrocious. And they lost to Kansas State at home in Oklahoma. They lost at TCU 55-24. to And they lost, obviously, to Texas. Now, they have Kansas, KU, Kansas University, coming in. They're ranked 19th. This game is going to be in Oklahoma. I would wager, I mean, I'm not going to bet, but I'll say it wouldn't be surprised if Oklahoma wins this game just from a pride standpoint. But Oklahoma was the number nine ranked team coming into the coming into the year in the preseason AP polls. To me, I think this is a good reason. Now, a lot of times, like you can you can easily guess that a team like an Alabama or a Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, at least the past couple of years, that they're going to be good teams. They're going to be top ten, if not top five teams, which is a very good <laughs> and and bet worthy, educated guess. But in instances such of these, such as this, I don't think there should be rankings until at least the first month of the season because it puts teams ranked higher than they should be, um, and t- and teams obviously that are that are unranked or ranked lower than they should be just based on how everybody looks in shorts or how they look in their inter squad or inter team scrimmages. Remember, in college football. There's no preseason games. The preseason games for Oklahoma was Kent State, Nebraska, and um, UTEP to start the year. And then they got into conference play and, and, and just looked like crap. The BCS rankings don't come out until the first week of November. So that's essentially like week eight. To me, there's just, other than selling magazines and getting something to talk about, there's no reason teams should be ranked preseason let teams play a couple games first so you actually know where they stand because for a team that's unranked it's going to be harder to climb up that ladder and for a team that's in the top 10 like Oklahoma they're unranked now but they probably shouldn't have been ranked that high I mean you know the first three weeks of the season first four weeks they beat UTEP Kent State and Nebraska then lose to Kansas State they should have been unranked from from week three to week four on I just think it it skews things too much, whether overvaluing or undervaluing teams. Now, looking ahead to this upcoming weekend, we have some really good games on the schedule. Starting off in the Big Ten, you have uh, number 10 Penn State and number 5 Michigan. Both teams still have to play Ohio State, and they probably will both lose that Ohio State game, but at least there's um, obviously a big rivalry between, between Happy Valley and Ann Arbor. Number three, Alabama at number six, Tennessee. Alabama gets Bryce Young back this week. They did not have him last week against Texas A&M and and, and squeaked out a win there. Now, this is a game, I'm a Tennessee fan just based on, I think, going back to high school. um, I wound up accurately predicting a Tennessee-Notre Dame game, and I've always disliked Notre Dame. So I just kind of glommed on or jumped onto the Tennessee bandwagon. It's amazing that they're a team that had Peyton Manning in the 90s 
did not win a national championship until the year after he left. They didn't even get to a national championship game. The year after he leaves in 1999, T. Martin, of all people, quarterbacks that team to a national championship, I believe, a win over Florida State. But this is a game, Tennessee's ranked sixth. They've they've played really well. They're undefeated, just like Alabama is. But this is a game that they cannot afford to lose because then I think people are going to come out and say, look, they were ranked sixth. Maybe we overranked them. Yeah, they beat up on a bad LSU team. Good job, Coach Brian Kelly. Um, They beat up on a bad LSU team in LSU last week. But this could be if they lose and lose, not even terribly, but lose by 10, 14, 17. I think people are going to say, well, well, look, maybe we overvalue Tennessee. Alabama is always going to get the benefit of the doubt. They can lose this game and still be in the top four playoff conversation at the end of the season. But a big game at Tennessee and Knoxville that I'll definitely be watching. But in the other conferences as well, big games, big rank games across the board. So the Big 12 has number eight Oklahoma State. At number 13, TCU, that's a battle of 5-0 teams. The Pac-12 has number 6, USC. At number 20, Utah, Uh, USC is undefeated. Utah has one loss. The ACC, number 15, North Carolina State. At number 18, Syracuse. NC State's 4-1, Syracuse, a surprising 5-0. So good games this weekend in college football. And wanted to give a shout-out to James Madison University, the Dukes, are ranked. This is the first time in program history they are in the top 25. They are ranked 25th. This is their first season, excuse me, at the FBS level, which basically means Division One, the highest level of college football. First season in that division, and it only took them five games. They are 5-0 and to get into the top 25. They have some tougher games coming up, um, division games, uh, or conference games rather against Marshall and the last week of the season against Coastal Carolina, who was ranked last year. And then they have Louisville in between, but congratulations. Listen, hope it continues. We're always rooting for the underdog, but I think really impressive making that jump up to the FBS and being ranked, uh, after the first month, uh, plus of the season, really, really well done to the kids down there. Now, transitioning to the NFL, um, and I know we talked about Tua last week, but let's talk about him again this week because he's already been ruled out um, against the Vikings. Whether it's precautionary or he's still not clearing concussion protocol, I don't know. Um, I think it's the right call because, again, this is an optics situation. And backup quarterback Teddy Bridgewater, who suffered a concussion against the embarrassing loss to the Jets, 40-17, to I believe, they're, they're still not sure about him. So it might be... Rookie seventh-round pick Skylar Thompson, uh, who may have to make the start at home against Minnesota. Now, last week, after the Bengals game on Thursday night, remember the the Dolphins played a Sunday game at Buffalo, uh, or at home against Buffalo, and then a Thursday game at Cincinnati. After the Cincinnati game, a couple days after the Cincinnati game, Miami fired the independent neurological consultant that okayed Tua to go back in the game. Now, this is just a blame game, right? Like, they're not going to fire the head coach. They're not going to fire... Somebody, based on how it looked, and he did get a concussion, he was, he was carted off the field, you know, to a, which was really hard to see. Someone needed to take the fall there. So it was the independent neurologist. Now, the NFL and the, NP, uh, the NFL Players Association, so the league and the Players Association, who is very protective and rightfully so of the players looked into this and said all of the concussion protocols were followed to a T. So now, if I'm the independent neurologist, I'd sue for 
wrongful termination. Again, this was a witch hunt. They were looking for someone to blame. And this is America. You know, we are, we are Sue happy. Uh, you know, remember like the old joke, you know, what do you call 50 lawyers at the bottom of the ocean? A good start. There's a reason for that. Cause a lot of lawyers out there are scumbags. I mean, if you can sue remember a decade plus ago, if you can sue McDonald's for giving you a hot coffee, which you ordered and you spill on yourself, then I think, I think the independent neurologist who probably has more money than I'll ever see anyway, can sue for this because someone, there needs to be accountability for, for this witch hunt and, and looking to point the finger of blame, which was not there. Now I understand again, there's no hard and fast rule in terms of how someone looks or any sort of diagnostic criteria at the moment during game day, during game time when someone has a concussion, but this person was fired because they needed to fire someone from an optics perspective. Again, it's America. I'd sue. Now let's move, let's move over to coaching. Um, and let's start with, with the coaching. Um, oh God, I don't even know what to call him, but someone that should be fired at the end of the season. I hate to say that, but Nathaniel Hackett, you have no business being a head coach. Um, I don't understand what he's made of that, that the Broncos and John Elway saw that they thought he was head coaching material, maybe because he was the offensive coordinator um, for the Packers the past couple of years. Meanwhile, the coach calls the plays. So again, he's one of those, what are you the, exactly the um, offensive coordinator of? But plus, when you have Aaron Rodgers, at that time, Devontae Adams, uh, Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon at running back. It kind of makes the job look easier for you. I know that the Packers are struggling this year, but that's only because Devonte Adams is gone and the floor is still, the head coach is still calling the plays. But if, if Nathaniel Hackett, if you have no game management skills and you need to hire someone to help you, which was a big boy move, you admitted where you're lacking. But if you as a coach can't handle the nuts and bolts of being a coach, you shouldn't be a coach. You're, you're not the right person for the job. Whether you're going to go for it on fourth and five versus kicking a 60-something yard field goal or what you did against the Indianapolis Colts or what you called, which we're going to get into, you are not head coaching material. I know how hard it is to get a coaching job, not based on personal preference, but personal experience, of course, but there's only 32 of these jobs um, in the world. And when you're offered one, unless it's a train wreck of an organization, you should take it. And I guess you don't know, or John Elway and the Broncos organization isn't going to know how he's going to work out until he's in the situation. But I think it's clear, five games into the season, Nathaniel Hackett, you're, you're going to fall under the Norv Turner, uh, maybe Herm Edwards realm of a good coordinator, more like Norv Turner, good offensive coordinator, but you have no business being a head coach. You Do you have time to turn it around? Sure, but... Problem number one, what you did um, at Seattle, kicking that field goal at the end of the game. Problem number two, the play calling against the, again, another horrendous nationally televised game, Broncos, that you were a part of. Let me set the stage. Two minutes and 19 seconds left. The Broncos are up nine to six. They're at the Indianapolis 13. Indianapolis has no timeouts left. If you run the ball three times you're going to win that game. You're not going to run the clock out, but you're going to win that game because you run the ball the first play. It's going to take you down to the two-minute warning. Remember, again, Indianapolis has no timeouts. You run the ball again. You're going to take the, the clock down to about a minute 20. 
You're going to snap it. You're going to run the ball again. You're going to take the, the clock down to about between 40 and 35 seconds. I'm going to assume Brandon McManus is going to make a 30-yard field goal, but even, I, I mean, I, I think we're going to assume that. Instead, with 219 left, he calls a pass play, which Wilson throws. It's undercut by the cornerback Stephon Gilmore, intercepted in the end zone. That was one of two interceptions that Russell Wilson had in the fourth quarter. Um, Indianapolis gets the ball back, goes down the field, kicks the field goal, 9-9 to at the end of regulation. At that point, the Amazon Prime broadcast shows fans in the stands leaving 9-9, to going into overtime. Fans are leaving. They've had enough. They showed throughout the broadcast, you, you heard the boos at mile high. You saw fans booing. Fans were getting very vocal. Russell Wilson looks broken, completely broken. I don't know if Nathaniel Hackett is telling him not to run, but that's one of, one of Wilson's best assets. They're not throwing the ball deep. When he is throwing the ball deep, rarely it's underthrown. He, he threw a really bad pick in the beginning of the fourth quarter, which was and a pressure was in his face. It was a back off his back foot throw. Nathaniel Hackett, again, what are you good at here? I don't see what you're good at. That's a game that could have gotten you to three and two. Instead, now you're two full games behind the Chiefs, who are four and one. And I think they're going to see that that Hackett is not the right head coach for bringing in a Hall of Fame quarterback and not using him and tailoring the offense to the best of his abilities. Now, going from a coach that I think should be fired, unless he completely turns it around, to a coach that was fired this week, yesterday, in fact or two days ago on Monday, Matt Rule of the Carolina Panthers, to my son's happiness, was fired after getting um, dominated by the San Francisco 49ers. Also fired was defensive coordinator Phil Snow. Offensive coordinator Ben McAdoo stays. Now, I find this interesting for several reasons. One, the defense was a middle-of-the-pack defense. They're ranked 18th. The offense was atrocious, last in the league, and bottom five in passing um, and rushing their bottom bottom 10 league. There's no reason why Ben McAdoo should stay on top of the fact that Ben McAdoo looks like the kind of guy that starts every morning with a couple Keystone Light beers before he goes outside to clean the Yosemite Sam mud flaps off of his mobile home. Now, I'm not going to be prejudiced and say that if you look like a hick, you should not be an offensive coordinator or coach in the league. But he does look like a hick, and he's not a good offensive coordinator, and you should have been fired also, or you should have been fired instead of Phil Snow, who probably should have been the interim head coach. Instead, I believe his name is Steve Wilkes, who's a former head coach of the Arizona Cardinals, had one disastrous year before he was fired, and then Cliff Kingsbury was brought in and Kyle Murray was drafted. So Wilkes isn't, no matter what happens in Carolina, Wilkes is not going to be the head coach um, next year. I, I always believe that in 2022, the NFL, you should be hiring an offensive minded head coach. You should not be bringing in someone to maybe not Nathaniel Hackett, but you shouldn't be bringing in a Matt Eberflus in Chicago. When you have Justin Fields as your quarterback, that's a team that's averaging the fewest pass attempts in the league. You need the offense to be, I don't want to say humming, but you need to be in lockstep with your coach your coordinator, your QB coach, 
you need to have as much offensive mind firepower that you can. And then obviously bring in a good defense, a good, strong defensive coordinator. I don't know where Caroline is going to go. Um, but what I am reading is, and I think this is people making stuff up, but let's just talk about it. There are reports that there's a Carolina fire sale now. This is a one in four team. They're not going anywhere this year. And that there are reports that they're looking to trade running back Christian McCaffrey, wide receivers, Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore, defensive tackle, Derek Brown and defensive end, Brian Burns. All right. Now I would say no to the last three players on the list. DJ Moore is a bona fide playmaker. Derek Brown, you still have him on his rookie contract. He's a force. And Brian Burns, you cannot get enough edge rushers in this league. So I think no matter what the ask is, there you, you turn people down. If you can get something for Christian McCaffrey, you do it. And there was a report that, again, this is, I think, people making stuff up, but the Bills were offering running back Devin Singletary and a second-round pick for McCaffrey. I would maybe hold out and try to get more, but I think the issue is Devin Singletary is really making next to no money. Second round pick's a pretty good pick. I don't think McCaffrey's, McCaffrey talent-wise is worth a first, but when you combine McCaffrey's talent, his salary, and his injury history, you're probably not going to get a first. So maybe that is a fair trade from Buffalo standpoint. Maybe they throw in another pick in a subsequent year, like maybe a fifth or sixth. I would try to get McCaffrey's salary off your books. I would, if you can get something for Robbie Anderson, I think he's making over $10 million next year for, for a one-trick pony. But a team maybe like a Dallas who could use another receiver or just a team that could use a vertical threat, I would I would consider that. Again, get some salary off the books. But more importantly, I would look at players who are not under contract next year and see if you can flip them for even if it's a sixth or a seventh or, 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 or a pick swap, something. I think it could be defensive tackle Matt Ioannidis. I think tackle Cam Irving, he's a backup now, at least I believe. Teams are looking for tackles. Hey, San Francisco is one of them. A receiver like Rashard Higgins, who's currently the third, if not fourth receiver now, now that uh, LaVisca Chenault um, is on the Panthers. Those are just three team, three players after looking at their roster and and who's who's an unrestricted free agent next year, who I think they should be um, looking to trade. So now let's kind of jump to uh, things that, uh, a situation that I know a lot of people have been talking about, the really bad roughing the passer calls in two of the games this past weekend. Now, first I want to say that between this time last year after week five and week five this year, roughing the passer calls are down almost 50%. 51 roughing the passers were called in 2021. 27 flags were thrown for roughing the passer this year. Now, the egregious ones are what has everybody talking. So Grady Jarrett on the Falcons sacks Tom Brady on, on an important third down play near midfield. With the Bucks down, they were down, uh, sorry, the Falcons were down 21-0, came back to make it 21-15, got a stop late in the game, flag was thrown on Brady. Now, the thinking there from the referee was, it looked similar to the sack whip throwdown that Tua experienced Thursday night at the Bengals, or that Thursday night game, but it wasn't generally the same thing, and it wasn't nearly as forceful forceful as a play. When you see it real time, should not have been called. The other one was the Sunday night game, Raiders at Chiefs, where Chris, jo Chris Jones, the defensive tackle for the Chiefs, does a great job chasing Derek Carr down from behind, stripping the ball with his right hand, tackling Derek Carr to the ground, and it's it was hard to see in real time in, in 
refs aren't looking at this in slow motion as it happens, but it looks like he braces his arm on the ground as he's, as he's tackling Derek Carr. Now that's called roughing the passer. That's considered a body weight foul that a 300 plus pound player is tackling and basically sandwiching the quarterback on the ground with his body weight. I, I don't know what more defensive players can do. Um, Derek Carr isn't that mobile of a quarterback, but if it was Chris Jones chasing a Lamar Jackson, a Russell Wilson, a Kyler Murray, do defensive players now have to worry about how they're going to tackle somebody? Um, with more mobile quarterbacks, if you're even thinking about that as a defensive player, you have a chance of losing that quarterback, slipping your grip because you're trying to be too careful. Last time I checked, quarterbacks wear pads and helmets too. Football is a violent game. To legislate out any headshots, anybody torpedoing the quarterback, going low in a forceful or an aggressive manner, I'm, I'm all for that. Quarterbacks are oftentimes, especially the top 10 ones, are the marquee draw for a team. It's um, very important for the league that their top players or top quarterbacks are playing. But you have to understand that it's obviously still it's obviously still tackle football. And I thought Troy Aikman said it best, although he's come under fire for it when he said, you know, guys, it's time to, to take the dresses off. Now, of course... You say anything that's considered like historically a joke or relatable to people when you understand what they're saying. Multiple people are coming out and saying that he's sexist. No, he's not. It's a phrase. It's a colloquial phrase that we know um, what it means. Now, there are women's football leagues. They're actually lingerie football leagues. So let's kind of get that out there. They're not actually in in full pads. Maybe there are leagues that are full pads, but they're not televised. The, the lingerie ones are. So if you want to uh, promote or glamorize women's football, that's kind of what we're what we're dealing with here. And Aikman is a former quarterback. Now, granted, he played in the 90s where a lot of these more severe hits were legal. But if you can have a quarterback, you know, make a comment that like, this is just, you can't turn this into flag football. And I coach a kid's flag football team and I played adult flag football for over 10 years. And there were some pretty bad injuries in that league. And I played quarterback and I actually took my fair share of shots. Thank God they weren't blindside hits because I'm not built for that. But if you have a quarterback saying this is getting to be too much, it's getting to be too much. And I think one of the things that the NFL should look at is college football makes targeting replay reviewable. Now, if you're not familiar with what targeting is, targeting is when, when a defensive player looks like he is launching himself at a player, defenseless or not. If someone, if a player is like literally like targeting, like the player has you in the, the scope in the site and he launches himself at the player, that's reviewable. Now, you you can't review intent. You don't know what, you know, obviously, I don't think players are trying to hurt themselves or, or maybe some jerk-off players are. I don't know. But it's hard to review intent in instant replay, but I guess, but you can get a feel for playing it at full speed, slowing it down. The the You can get a feel, not 100%, but a flavor for the force involved. And I think the NFL should look at making roughing the passer something that's reviewable. Now, I know that that opens a can of worms, right? Where do you draw the line? Do you make offensive holding reviewable? 
Do you make pass interference reviewable? All of these are judgment calls, but I think because roughing the excuse me, roughing the passer has come under such fire in recent years. And these were two plays that were important plays in the game. Atlanta would have gotten the ball back. They never did. Would have gotten the ball back to maybe win that game. The Chiefs wound up winning that game against the Raiders. And actually, let's talk about that for a second because Josh McDaniels is, is cut from the Nathaniel Hackett cloth. Josh McDaniels is a very good offensive coordinator. He was a terrible head coach in Denver. When you trade up to draft Tim Tebow as your quarterback, you should be fired on the spot. The Raiders are one in four. They have a chance, they had a chance to win that game. They score a touchdown to make it 30 to 29 with four and a half minutes to go, and Josh McDaniels decides to go for two. This is not Monday morning hindsight is 2020 quarterbacking or coaching. There was four and a half minutes to go. Even if you get the two-point conversion, you go up 31 to 30, you don't go for two there. You have one of the most accurate kickers in the league in Daniel Carlson, and I would wager an extra point is a higher percentage play than a two-point conversion. Tie the game. The Chiefs are going to get the ball back. Hope you get a stop or they score quick enough that you can get the ball back. But if you're up one, you know, the thinking by Josh McDaniels afterwards, and even at Troy, um, uh, the, the announcers at the time, uh, Joe Buck, yeah, and Troy Aikman, we're saying like, well, I understand the rationale. You're, you're not able to stop them, so you might as well get the lead. Well, if you're not able to stop them, what does it matter if you have a one-point lead? They're going to just drive down the field and kick a field goal or, or score anyway. Now, kudos to the Raiders' defense. They stopped the the um, the Chiefs, so they got the ball back with, I, I forget what it was. I don't know if it was around two minutes to go or, or less. But now Josh McDaniels is the play caller, went to crap again. So they had a third down and one near midfield, say around, I think it was around the 45-yard line of the Raiders, they throw a deep sideline fade to Devontae Adams, almost makes the catch, did not get the second foot down. And in the fourth down play, Chiefs send an all-out blitz. Receivers Hunter Renfro and Devontae Adams run into each other because Adams was bumped by the corner at the top of the screen through the timing off. Ra Raiders receivers run into each other, turn the ball over on downs. There was under a minute to go. If it's third down in one, you give your most high percentage plays. You just need to get that first down. If you're going to throw a sideline pass to Devontae Adams, that's like a 50-50 play. Josh Jacobs was running like a monster against the, uh, against the Chiefs' defense. Give him the ball twice or give him the ball once and sneak it. Give yourself high percentage plays just to get the first down. You get the first down and you want to make that throw to Adams, Devontae Adams on the sideline, I'm okay with that. Josh McDaniels, you outthought yourself. All you needed was... 10, 15 yards to get Carlson into range for a field goal. I'm sure McDaniels, you'll be there beyond this year unless you finish 3-14 and 14 or, or maybe even 5-12. and 12. You are not a good head coach. You and Nathaniel Hackett should be fired at the end of the season. Unless you guys run the table, which I doubt either of you will. Actually, you have to play each other. So that I mean, unless you tie twice. But that, that's not going to happen. Go back to being coordinators. Now, before we get into our NFL picks, uh, Major League Baseball playoffs kicked off um, past several days. The um, three of the four wildcard series were sweeps, and by sweeps, it was a best of three. So, you know, teams needed to win two to sweep, but the Phillies swept the Cardinals, Seattle swept at the Blue Jays, and Cleveland swept at home over Tampa Bay. Now, the Cardinals series, I saw a crazy stat, and I might get the number wrong, but the first game against Philadelphia was the... Um, 
the Cardinals were up by two runs. And that was the first time in more than 50, 50 or even more postseason games where the Cardinals blew a two-run league. Now, the Cardinals are a historic franchise that have been in a lot of playoff games. The fact that that's the first time that's happened, I guess either ever or the last 50, 60-plus games, that's that's wild. Um, the Phillies are playing with house money, man. They're you know one of the wild-card teams. Not that they backed their way into the playoffs by any means, but... It took the last week of the season for them to actually, you know, get a spot. Um, you know, so good for them. Now, we'll talk about the Mets. Like, me being a Mets fan, you know, the team that I follow the most, obviously, is the 49ers. I don't have a Mets podcast. I have a Niners podcast, and I'm talking about the Mets here. So that, that'll show you the hierarchy. Mets are out. You know, San Diego won two of three in New York. Their pitching somewhat failed. Well, the pitching certainly failed in the end of the regular season, which we'll get into. But game one, Max Scherzer got lit up. They lost 7-1. to one. Jacob deGrom was down in game two. The Mets come back uh, to win that game 7-3. to three. And Bassett and the Mets got shut out in game three, 6 to nothing. So end of the season, you know, for you Met fans or baseball fans, you know what I'm about to say. There were six games left in the season. They were up by up on Atlanta um, by a game. They get swept in Atlanta. Both Scherzer and DeGrom lose their two starts. They come back and sweep Washington, and they finish tied with Atlanta with a 101-61 and record. Atlanta wins the tiebreaker. Now the Mets have some decisions. So Jacob DeGrom, one of their aces, is a free agent. He's 34 years old. He's going to want the bag, right? He's going to want... A bunch of money. Problem is, he's been injury prone the last couple years. Compound that with the fact that this past offseason, the Mets gave Max Scherzer, who's 38, a three-year contract worth $130 million. When you do the math, that's $43 annually. If I'm DeGrom or DeGrom's agent, that's the starting point for negotiations. First, I'm a homegrown talent, multiple Cy Young winner. My ERA is crazy low. Yes, I've had some injuries in the past, but I am four years younger than Max Scherzer. Now Scherzer was on the, went on the injured list um, a couple times this year. So people are going to start maybe talking, well, now just because, you know, you were a workhorse and you're, you know, by age 37 year, everybody gets older. Everybody breaks down. Is this going to start to be the end of Max Scherzer? I wouldn't go that far. DeGrom, again, past performance or past injury is no guarantee for what the future holds, but it doesn't look great. The Mets are going to have to give him at least 45, right? At, at least at least 45 million. There will be, I, I've heard that fans are split on this, but if they let DeGrom go, that's, that's terrible optics. The Mets were built with their pitching. Now they need some batting as well. I can't imagine a scenario where they lowball DeGrom, especially with Cohen, the owner. He's got, he's wildly rich. Um, I think they're going to give DeGrom money. They have to go after another bat. Now, if somehow DeGrom states that he just doesn't want to play for them and go somewhere else. I, I, I would make a play for judge if no, Aaron judge, if for no other reason to just drive the price up on the Yankees, like the, the hell with the Yankees. Now, before the season started, judge turned down a seven year deal worth 31 and a half million dollars annually. He bet on himself. Good for him. He's going to make a lot more than 31 and a half million dollars annually. I mean, when you look at it, Francisco Lindor, who the Mets signed, Signed a 10-year deal. He's younger than Judge. Nobody should give Judge a 10-year deal. 10 years for $341 million, so $34.1 million a year. Judge is certainly the more valuable player. He's older. 
He's 30 years old. He has had some injury history. I don't know how much you have to factor that into consideration when he was um, in play for the Triple Crown. He is going to be MVP. Um, uh, you know, the the Yankees should not let him go. And a lot of the talk of, well, you know, are the Yankees, do the Yankees have money to sign him? Let's even say they give him $40 million a year. Which I can, you know, with the season he's had and the fact that he's the face of the Yankees, the Yankees may do that. Now, there's other teams like the San Francisco Giants, the Mets. I don't know if the, the Dodgers can afford him because they've already allocated a lot of money. But these are teams that can kind of drive the price up. But what's good for the Yankees, and I hate to say this, disliking the Yankees, their payroll this year was $265 million. Their payroll plummets to 151 next year, but that's before there's some players that have to go through arbitration, so that number is going to grow. I'm not sure how much higher than 151. The luxury tax threshold before they actually start paying significant tax on salary that goes above the threshold is 270 million. So where they were just under it this year, remember 265, even if you give even if before arbitration the, the Yankees are up to uh, let's say from 151 to 180 or 185. If you give Judge 40 million, you're at 220. You still have another 50 million to sign free agents. So I think I think the 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 chance of you know Hal Steinbrenner is running this like a business. They're not going to want to pay players or overpay for players. They overpaid for Garrett Cole. They're still paying Giancarlo Stanton. They're overpaying for his performance. Um, I, I anticipate him being. A Yankee next year, but I think he should he should test free agency. Why not? This is his only time to cash in big. Get every dollar you can. If you're not going to go to the Yankees and you say you go to the Mets, that's a playoff contender. San Francisco has been a playoff contender the past several years. Other than this year, they're they will field a better team with Aaron Judge. So in, just interesting, and we're we're not even through the playoffs now. The division round. The Yankees took the first game over the Cleveland Guardians. Garrett Cole, pitcher for the Yankees, had a good outing. Houston needed a three-run home run in the bottom of the ninth to beat Seattle to take a 1-0 lead. Philadelphia uh, held on at Atlanta, so they've won three consecutive playoff games now, two against the Cardinals, one against the Braves. And L.A. was up 4-0 the Dodgers on the Padres, wound up holding them off to beat them 5-3. What I do like that baseball has done is, I know there's a lot of baseball purists out there that do not like the wild card or the expanded wild card, Bob Costas, who's calling one of the games on TBS, is, is one of those baseball purists and a fantastic announcer. But I like how the Major League Baseball playoffs increasing games as the series goes on. So the wild card is best of three. So you win two out of three, you move on. I like the fact that there's no travel involved. If you are the higher-seeded wild card team, you host all three games if it comes to it. Good idea. The divisional round is best of five, so you have to win three. You do travel. It's 2-2-1. Two, two, um, and then the league division, I'm sorry, the, the uh, league championship series and the world series is obviously best of seven. I think this is great. It obviously increases the importance of the games and your rotations, the depth of your rotation, um, as the series goes on. And, and I know baseball is a, is a sport, I guess much like hockey that shows the longer the series goes, usually the better team wins, um, because you have to win three games or four games out of five or seven. Um, and usually the team that's just the better team top to bottom with the better uh, rotation and bullpen are usually the, the teams that move on. Now the NBA used to have a best of five format in the first round and they took that away. The NBA playoffs are way too long, way too long. Every series is the best of seven. And on top of that, they added the play in, um, 
the play-in games where the 7 and 8 ranked seeds play the 9 and 10 seeds. And they're even talking about this mid-season tournament, which I hope they're not going to do. The NBA is the second most popular sport in the country and a very popular sport worldwide. More Potentially worldwide more popular than the NFL since there's not really... There are European NFL leagues, but they're garbage. There are good European basketball leagues and women's basketball leagues overseas. I don't think they need these gimmicks. And that's really all it is, a gimmick for people to watch. Um... But the basketball hockey dropped last night. The Rangers wound up beating the Lightning three to one. Basketball is right around the corner. Playoffs are long. It's eighty-two games with a lot of load load management for players. Players don't play every game like they did in the nineties or, or even close to every game. And the playoffs again, way way too long. Uh, but that concludes our um, plus section up to NFL Week Six picks, which we are actually going to get into now. So our first game of the week is a brutal Thursday night game, Washington at Chicago. Uh, I'll probably watch some of this game, and unless people have any sort of betting or rooting interest, there's just not a lot to like here. I have David Montgomery, the running back for the Bears, on two of my fantasy teams, which will probably be the only reason I watch, but I think Chicago does enough to get a win over Washington. Sunday, the 1 o'clock games, um, San Francisco and Atlanta. I made that pick already. San Francisco 27-17. New England at Cleveland, good for rookie Bailey Zappi and the Patriots who shut out the Lions last week. I do think Cleveland um, will win. They will. Bill Belichick is, is very good and or great at taking away what the other team likes to do, and Cleveland likes to run. But I think Cleveland's offensive line is too good. Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb. Solid running backs, and I think Jacoby Brissett again, who's found a good connection with tight end David Njoku and also receiver Amari Cooper, will uh, do enough to beat the Patriots. Jets at the Packers, good for the Jets, beating up on a Dolphins team down to their third-string quarterback. Bad on the Packers, losing to a 4-1 Giants team who is not nearly as good as their record says they are. I think this is a bounce-back game for the Packers. I think Jet fans, relax, you're 3-2, Two straight wins with Jack Will, uh, Zach Wilson being back. I think Green, this is a get-right game for Green Bay, and I think Green Bay will win and cover whatever the spread winds up being. Jacksonville at Indianapolis, I think this can go either way. Jacksonville has come back down to earth hard the past two weeks after starting 2-1. Um, and one. Indianapolis shouldn't be as bad as, as they are. I'm not sure if uh, running back Jonathan Taylor is going to play in this game. Uh, being at home and still having a pretty decent defense, I think Indianapolis gets the win. Minnesota at Miami. Uh, I'll take the Vikings. Uh, this is contingent on if Skylar Thompson, the rookie seventh-round pick for the Dolphins, is going to be quarterbacking again. He's going to be. He was barely functional against the Jets. I don't know how much more a week of practice is really going to matter. And the Vikings have looked good the first five weeks of the season. Cincinnati at New Orleans. Uh, I'll take the Saints here again at home, Superdome, tough place to play. Uh, defense for New Orleans playing pretty well. Taysom Hill had a huge day as a Wildcat quarterback, running back, hybrid type of thing. But I think they'll be able to corral and control the Bengals and get the victory. Baltimore at the Giants. I can see the Giants winning this game in just sloppy Giants fashion. Uh, but I think Baltimore is going to be a bit too explosive throwing the ball and running the ball. And I think their their defense um, playing much more zone now, I think, is is very was helpful for them um, 
against the Bengals last week getting the victory, and I think it'll it'll bend but but not break against a New York offense that's other than Saquon Barkley not really explosive in in the least. Tampa Bay at Pittsburgh. This is going to be Kenny Pickett's first full start. Better that it's coming at home than in Tampa, but Tampa wins this game easily. Carolina at the Rams. Um, Baker Mayfield's out for multiple weeks with an ankle injury, so P.J. Walker will be getting the start for the Panthers, who are just a mess. The Rams do not look good. I'm rooting for the Panthers. My son's rooting for the Panthers. Anytime the Rams or anyone else in the NFC West loses is good for me, but I do think the Rams win this game. Arizona at Seattle. I actually picked up Geno Smith um, for one of my fantasy teams because the Raiders uh, are on a bye among other teams, including the Lions, the Titans, and the Texans. I think Seattle at home, I think this will be a close game, but I think Seattle at home beats the Cardinals. Uh, Buffalo at Kansas City, easily the game of the day. I know, you know, two best teams in the league with all due respect to Philadelphia. Um, I think, you know, as great as, as, Josh Allen is, and in some ways you could say he's a more dangerous quarterback than Patrick Mahomes because he does add the running element. Buffalo's got a better defense against Kansas City. Kansas City is more uh, blitz-happy now and are going to play more man-to-man. I think until you beat Patrick Mahomes, you're just you're the guy that's trying to beat Patrick Mahomes, right? And the Chiefs, much more balanced this year than years past with running the football. Buffalo cannot run the ball a lick. They're, st- they're a one-dimensional team, but they're still a very good one-dimensional team and a good defense, but we saw what that good Buffalo defense did or didn't do last year against the Chiefs, and they couldn't close out. That's why they went out and signed Von Miller from the Rams, but I think, again, until I see them beat the Chiefs, I'm just going to keep picking the Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. Dallas at Philadelphia. Uh, Jerry Jones, the de facto GM, mouthpiece, wannabe coach, wannabe offensive coordinator, says he's not sure if Dak Prescott is going to quarterback uh, yet. They have to see how he throws it and spins it in practice. I would give Cooper Rush one more game, not because he's 4-0. That's a small part of the equation. Um, but you just don't want to put Dak Prescott out there until he's uh, really ready. The defense is playing really well for Dallas. I think this is a good litmus test for the Eagles offense to go up against uh, a defense like Dallas. I think Philadelphia at home gets the victory and our Monday night game. Any game the Broncos is a part of is brutal on national television. Here they are again, this time at the Chargers. Hopefully the Chargers, um, can show some offense. And even if they blow Denver out, just make it exciting. Give us, give us some scoring in a team, in a game that the Broncos are a part of. I don't think the Broncos really have much. They have a good defense. The offense is in shambles. Um, the chargers coming off of a big win at Cleveland. will get the victory on Monday night. So that concludes our podcast for this week. I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you're enjoying the start of the NHL season, major league playoffs. Like I mentioned, we have some really good college football games this weekend. And of course, Uh, another great slate of NFL action. So I will catch you all next week. Thanks a lot.